Welcome to Time to Market, a podcast by Lean B2B and SK Murphy, in which we share actionable advice, principles, and rules of thumbs for B2B founder. In this episode, we're going to be discussing how startups can play a fast game, how to know when you're making progress and when you're not, how to create proximity with organizations, how to get the right size of product and right size of opportunity to actually be able to go fast. We hope you enjoyed this new episode. Guess what changed since the last recording? I don't know. What has changed? Well, we now have a name for the podcast. So we started the Tree First podcast. We were kind of naming it, oh, the new podcast. So this new idea that we're working on. But now we have a name. Time to market. How do you like that? I like it. I like the Sean and Etienne show, but this is okay too. <laughs> yeah, it feels more like a bigger thing. And now we have a logo, we have everything. So we're good to go. It's that the sell fast and break things mentality where we're getting started really quickly. And then we're iterating as we go along. What's this time to market mean to you, Sean? So from a startup perspective, I think it's how quickly can you offer people a result or an outcome that they're willing to pay for. So I'm talking specifically from a B2B context, B2B startups trying to get into market. How can you show them something and they say, yes, I'd like to pay for that. Yes, I think that'll have a positive impact on my business. So it's more than just getting on the market or feeling like you put something out and you're available. It's more having some kind of fit with what the expectations are on the market. Yeah, I, I would make a distinction between a launch, which to me is a marketing activity that is more of an announcement. A launch is not really a conversation. To me, getting in the market, you're having conversations, which means that you're talking to and listening to customers. And so that's making offers and then judging their reaction. So you're saying that just putting together a website is not the same thing as success? No, no. I think if you're, I think that's what I call veterinary marketing, where, you know, the veterinary, the veterinarian doesn't actually get to ask the animal how they feel. They have to kind of judge by indirect signs what's going on. So I think if you're not having conversations, then I think at least in B2B, I think you're doing it wrong. Okay. Okay. So we wanted to do an episode more about specifically why we chose that umbrella. What specifically do you want to talk about in this episode? I'd like to talk about how startups can play a fast game. In other words, how can you get in front of prospects with real offers as quickly as possible? And that's complicated, I think, by two challenges that startups face against incumbents. The first is <clears throat> incumbents have more resources and they have existing relationships with customers. So they have trusted relationships they can leverage. Normally, startups have fewer of those. Second, they have debugged capabilities that act as kind of grooves or channels, but that also means that they're more confident of their ability to execute. The implications of this are that startups have to identify new opportunities where the incumbent's advantages don't weigh as heavily on them, and then they have to learn faster than the incumbents are to make up for these deficits. And so I thought we might look today at how you spot opportunities earlier, how you learn faster, and how you execute faster. And to that end, I think that there are kind of three, three ways to do that. The first is to look into what customers are already using and see if you can add a missing piece. 
right? So instead of trying to come and, and do what we used to call a forklift upgrade where you're replacing things, if you can just add a missing piece, that allows you to get in the market faster. Secondly, if you can shrink the scope of what you're trying to do so that it still provides value, but it's smaller, it's easier to iterate on small things than large things. That doesn't mean you have to shrink your vision for what the total product looks like, but you can focus on kind of the sharp end of the stick, so to speak, or the thin edge of the wedge. And the third is, in the same way that incumbents can leverage existing proven processes they've debugged internally, I think you've got to look at, can I take solutions that are already working, maybe in other industries, other verticals, other domains, and repurpose, remix them so that I'm working with 80%, 90%, 70% proven, and then I'm just adding a piece to that. So either be adding a piece to the customer's infrastructure or adding a piece to existing solutions at work. So those are my three kind of thoughts there. Okay. So in a sense, it's a little bit like how do you cut time in terms of finding the right thing to work on, getting something in the market, and also a little bit how to learn faster than, than the other organizations or how do you find ways to actually find the right model or the right framework for what you're trying to put together as quickly as possible. I think there's, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of outcomes when you're kind of telling people about what you can do for them. The first is the, what's called Migo, my eyes glaze over. And so okay. that means that, that it's not working yeah. and you should learn to detect that very quickly in your interactions so that you don't keep going on when they're like not interested. So that's actually data. It doesn't feel like data. It feels kind of painful, but it's actually data. One yeah, of the ways yeah. you can tell you're learning something is you're surprised. Right. If everything is going according to plan, you're not really learning anything. Right. And then the second thing is when their eyes light up where they say, yes, I think I could see doing that. Or what about this? Once they start to add constraints or to help you remix the solution, then you're starting to get uptakes. You're looking for either this isn't working for me or here's how you can fix this. Or if you could do this, this would be compelling. Yeah, I do have some concerns with that, with the idea of like, all learning is good. To me, I've already had issues with the idea that, because you can spend your life learning things, like you can spend your life learning different things about different types of customers, and it can feel like you're always discovering new things, and it can feel like it's all exciting, all these things. It's just, I find it's easy also to get caught up in this all learning, all discoveries, all these things without necessarily making progress. It feels like there's a lot of these phases within the startup that can take a lot of time or can steal a lot of the founding team's attention uh, that don't necessarily equate to progressing. And does feel, because starting out a business is often an exploratory process initially, at least, it does feel like there's a lot of room or possibilities of going in the wrong direction and kind of realizing six months later, oh, we learned all these cool things, but we didn't actually make progress beyond launching or beyond having these interviews with random people where we were told different things. So maybe based on that, how do you make sure that you're actually making progress? Well, I think that's a fair criticism and one that hadn't occurred to me. So I think there's two things going on. So I have ADD 
And one of the side effects of ADD is hyper-focus on novelty. And so that gets into your, I'm always learning new things. It's always exciting, right? So, so that's definitely a risk. I yeah. would say that one of the ways to test if you're converging is to see, are you refining your customer selection criteria? Are you getting crisper about who you're trying to serve? Are you narrowing your focus in terms of who it is you're trying to serve? and specific criteria they have to pass? And then what is the problem or need you're trying to address? And is that getting narrower? And I think one of the, one of the symptoms of the first kind of failure you're talking about, where you're just running around sniffing every flower, is that you never narrow your selection criteria. You never focus. And I think some entrepreneurs are afraid to do that because they think that they're shrinking the market. And they are. But you're trading that focus on a niche, hopefully for the ability to actually get into some market and start to get traction, start to get uptake. Well, to make progress, you kind of need to know where you're going. Like that, that is kind of, I think one of the fallacies in terms of exploration and in terms of not having some kind of guiding light that kind of tells you what direction you're supposed to be going on. Like you want to talk specifically about the speed of iteration, but if you don't know towards what you're trying to iterate. Speed is just speed. You're pedaling really quickly. You're on your bike. You're going really fast, but you're not necessarily going anywhere. Yeah, if you're constantly accelerating, you may be traveling in a circle as well. I think you've got to worry about, if we come back to the place we've started, I think the selection criteria is one way to measure that. Are, are you getting crisper about who you're focusing? The other thing is, there's an old joke. When you start to rapidly scale... So should we do this? The answer is, yes, we have a strategy for that. We're not doing it. And so one of the ways that you can tell that you're actually starting to get a little traction is you're saying no to a lot of the things that you're seeing because you know where your focus is and you're hunting for where you know you can provide value. And that's just to get established in that first niche and make sure that you know who you can serve. The second benefit of that is that the narrower your focus on both a particular kind of customer and a particular kind of problem, the better you are over time to predict the results that you can deliver. They don't really want your product. They want the results of your product to deliver. And the better you can predict how quickly and what level of result you can deliver, the more likely you are to, to close a deal and to move forward. Okay, awesome. But that's partly why I really like your point about like, you want to talk specifically about how do you kind of create milestones and be able to, to maybe not start with the full solution or the full vision where you're trying to get at, but kind of layer that in a way to make sure that you're able to make consistent progress a little bit. Right. And I think one trick is to actually look for customers with pre-existing infrastructure or procedures or capabilities so that you're just adding one piece to it. So one way to shrink the product is to go to a customer that's already got two-thirds of the solution assembled, and you're just helping them go faster or go more cheaply or reduce errors or get a much better result, right? And so that, I think that's the first trick is to hunt for customers that have certain criteria about how they're already working or operating as a way to get into the market faster, right? Sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes, for example, it might be you're looking for customers that have many branch offices because that's going to lead to certain kind of problems that if everybody is co-located, mm -hmm. they're not going to see, right? Sometimes it's the other 
you need everybody in one building so that then your solution is going to work better than if they're all just. Okay. So you're looking for people who are a little more solution aware or have a better idea of the gap that they're looking for? I think you have to specialize. I think you have to narrow your focus and specialize. And that allows you to bring a smaller product, which you can iterate more rapidly to a narrower market or a niche. But for that particular customer, it's a lot more value. So it's, it's a little bit like somebody that does liver transplants. You don't have a large market, but when you find somebody that needs one, you've got a very motivated buyer, right? I was discussing my, my girlfriend's currently looking for a new job, if there's anyone recruiting right now. But we were discussing a little bit how she should position herself in the market. And we we're discussing how she should try to create a category of one. So more or less be in a market of one, as opposed to be a broader market where she could fit multiple positionings. But you get to that point, if you're very, very narrowly focused, it's easier to pad is a little bit clearer to find the companies you should be working with or the companies you should be trying to convince to, to buy your product. Because there's more clarity around the value that's provided because you've narrowed it down a little bit. No, I think that's a good point. I think customers have to understand your offer, but I think it's okay if the offer is like a dog whistle. You know, you blow the dog whistle, none of the cats look up, but a couple of dogs come running. So to the yeah. extent that they realize it's just for them, it makes sense. Okay. So I have something that is more narrowly focused on a specific set of problems or extension to the existing infrastructure of companies. What were your, your other points that you were mentioning before? Well, I think the second thing is we get really hung up on our product and we, we work with a team that was developing a new piece of instrumentation and they were, they were looking at this process of how do you get this installed in the lab and this is going to be expensive. And they kind of reframed it and said, you know what, we're going to start off and we're going to sell test results. We're going to take in samples and sell test results. The nature of the equipment is that it provides some unique kinds of detection capabilities. So we're going to hunt for people that are trying to do certain kinds of experiments, certain kinds of diagnostics, and then we're going to sell them that result. And then at a certain point, as you run multiple tests for a particular customer, the customer is, well, wait a minute, why am I paying you to do this? Can I buy one of these boxes, right? And so you're getting them over the hump, but they've already recognized the value because you've sold them the result. And I think, I think a lot of teams would be better served to put their software behind their back or their box behind their back and figure out what is the output that I can deliver that yeah. the customer actually wants to pay for. That also... If you're doing that inside of your, you know, kind of your four walls, your speed of iteration can be much higher as opposed to, oh, let me upgrade your software. Let me upgrade the software on the server. It looks more like a service. And so the classic counterpunch to that is that doesn't scale very well. But in the beginning, you're not actually looking for scale. You're looking for proof of value. You're looking for somebody wants to pay for this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would even argue like before that you're looking for proximity. You're looking for a way to even have these discussions, like make sure that the people are willing to have these discussions. So you're actually proving that they want to have these exchanges where you're able to kind of have these conversations around value where, okay, like if we did this in this format specifically, do you want to have that proximity where you're actually able to exchange on the value exchange itself and be able to figure that. I remember 
past startup that I had, Ayurvore, is like we were trying a little bit to squeeze a solution that probably would have made a great consulting company. Like we we're creating reports that were analysis of the company's employer brand positioning. So we're trying to do that with software, but we're kind of trying to squeeze that software solution onto something that could have made a great business for someone willing to do consulting. But then you get that mismatch in terms of expectations and because you're trying to sell it in a way that is more or less involved in terms of you're not trying to actually do the consulting and all these things, it becomes a, a, a yes, no discussion with the company. So you don't have these ongoing exchange rates, you iterate on the value and make sure you're able to find the right fit for the model that you're getting at. So you're actually missing out on a lot of these insights and those conversations that can help you make progress at this stage. So going back to the girlfriend remark for a minute, to the extent <laughs> that you're, no, but to the extent that you're trying to offer a unique product or at least a differentiated yeah. product. Yes, which is then, what we are. Yeah. Then you have, I think the question of will they pay for the service? Will they pay for the test? If the answer to that is no, if they won't pay for the service, they're not going to pay for the software. They're not going to pay for the box, right? Yes. It's, it's a cheaper evaluation strategy to sell them a SIP, so to speak, than to try and sell them some much larger solution. I do think as well, like when you do try to sell the bigger solution, your mindset or the way you build it or the way you think about it is different. It kind of forces you to some extent to think in the, oh, I'm going to try to drop it over the wall and see, see, like it kind of creates more distance in how you interact with customers. A really interesting experience on this that I wrote a case study on is Brennan Dunn from Right Message. The guy's been focused on website personalization for years, and he's basically done it all. So he's worked selling it as a consultant, so $10,000 to install on the website. He built plugins, then he built courses, then he went back to consulting, then he went back to software. And all these different phases kind of helped shed a little bit more light about the right way to build a solution that actually fits the, the right type of customers in the market. Uh, so sometimes just having that greater proximity gives you a little more of a faster feedback loop that can really help you in terms of being able to cut time to getting the right solution, cut time to finding the right model. I think that that may also be a retrospective story where after you wander the landscape a little bit, you look back yeah. and connect the dots and go, oh, this is what I was trying to do. Now my strategy makes sense, right? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, if, if you can at least figure it out afterwards. You're, yeah. You're, yeah. But to be fair, I'm the one that wrote the case study. He's not the one that, that wrote the story that way. So maybe I'm the one that did the issue there. <laughs> There's a Kierkegaard quote about life can only be understood looking backwards, right? And so I think that argues for a periodic retrospective and reevaluation just to integrate what you've learned. I think that's the other, that's another yeah. test you can apply to yourself as opposed to running around and looking at all the flowers in the valley. Can you periodically say, what have I learned? Am I seeing patterns? Am I not going to go to the northern part of the valley now? I'm just going to focus on whatever, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And maybe I can squeeze that in as a strategy for being able to cut time. Is being really honest in terms of doing these retrospective. If we're looking a little bit like in the agile lingo and all these things, or even in a lead startup, like this, this idea of being able to reassess and making this periodic reassessment of, have we actually made progress? Have we actually worked on things that were truly bringing us forward or making us progress through this journey? 
I think being really clear about that and being really honest about the things that we've worked on that turned out to be distractions or that were not based on the most solid assumptions, solid information is also a good way to kind of kind of make yourself progress. I do this with my personal business, the other business that I have. It's a good way to just make sure that over time you're reducing your useless task percentage and trying to focus more on the things that really do make your company make progress towards your goals. The challenge I would offer to that is to the extent that you're saying no to more things, I think you're learning something. I think at least if you're looking at how to get into the market, establishing the beachhead, finding your niche, progress is you're saying no to more and more things. You're, yeah. you're saying, yes, we, we're not going to go there again, right? Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like, like to your point from the start, is it's about getting more clarity around the specific component or a specific causation within your organization to some extent. And that's where you know you're kind of making progress when you start to understand why these organizations are facing certain challenges and why they're in that specific situation. Then you can subtly use that as a way to kind of get more customers, more ways to have more discussions. It's when you're starting to kind of get a a perspective of the, the things are getting clear that you're able to kind of use that as a way to accelerate your business and cut time. I work with a lot of engineers and scientists, and I think there's, there's this natural tendency to look at an existing solution and say, I can do better than, right? Yeah. So I think another thing that you actually say no to is. You say, I can use what's already in the market and just add this smaller piece, which provides unique value or differentiated value. So I think the third thing you're doing is you're actually kind of, you know, like Frankenstein, you're kind of assembling out of piece parts initially other solutions. And I know you've talked about no code. That's another way to do it or using the, like Excel or other yeah. kind of low code applications. I think there's this desire to, to be the inventor when you're probably better off to be primarily the integrator and then yeah. a little spark of invention. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? I think it's way more about assembling a solution, especially early on than being a true inventor. If anything, if there's something that I've learned in the last 20 years or something like that, it's basically the more you are inventing, the more likely it is not to work to some extent. Like, like there is a, a, a percentage chance that you've stumbled on the right thing. But I think if you ask more, more and more successful entrepreneurs, like they will tell you that oftentimes they were very wrong about what they ended up actually building. Like it's not necessarily the first thing that they thought of. It's not the eureka moment. It's not something that came up from scratch. It's something that they added to an existing thing and then they iterated it on and, and created something that is much bigger. I think as a learning exercise, as an entrepreneur, like one of the things that is most useful and I would advise every entrepreneur to do is to use a way back machine and go back and look at successful companies and look at the evolution of their pitches over the years. Like just the way they position themselves, like either as something that you mentioned before, as something that is very narrow, we do that specific little thing. And then gradually they took on more, more, more niche or more, more functionalities or changed their positioning over time. It is very, very educative to, to see how even some of the companies that are worth billions of dollars today, they started as very, very, very simple things 
where they started as things that were actually not related at all to the things that they are doing today. Like even companies like like ServiceNow that I looked at a while back, like it started as a tiny thing and then went and now it's it's this massive organization that it's it's very, very fascinating. Yeah, I think I think this is this is a good point. I think the idea of being able to get in and then based on trusted relationships, now you look more like an incumbent. And I think you've always got to be mindful that the incumbent is pulling things off the shelf that they know work. The more that you're loading up new things into an offering, the more likely that one of them isn't going to work. And if it's in if it's in series, if all three or five or seven things have to come together to work, your odds of a kind of a synergistic success go way down. Yeah, yeah. And you see that when you, you speak to organizations in terms of how they're shopping for solutions, oftentimes they're looking for yeah. something that does that specific thing. We just want to add this. They don't want to add the full thing. Like I don't want necessarily the full HR solution. I want the application applicant tracking system. I don't want the other things. So the other things are just adding cost to that initial offering. So that, to your point, is one of the opportunities for founders is can you be that little thing that people need? And can you get to that point where you have something that is actually allowing you to kind of have these interactions with customers as quickly as possible? And can you explore that and move that towards becoming something bigger? I would turn that around as well. I okay. would say if somebody comes to you and says, you know, we'd like to scrap everything we're doing and kind of regain our virginity and start from scratch, the odds that that project will actually bear fruit, that that person is connected to a real project inside is low. Normally, you've got to figure out how do you interoperate with existing solutions, yeah. existing stuff. Yeah. And, and I think startups will encounter people that want to start with a blank sheet of paper and they get really yeah. excited and, you know, months go by, sometimes a year goes by and, yeah. and they're not actually in the market. They're talking to a prospect, but they're not talking to somebody inside the company that's going to be able to bring about that change. But that's a very difficult selling proposition to some extent, like where you're looking for that person that's looking for a blank slate, more or less. It happens right. where you have like that new VP that comes in like, burn everything. I'm going to be the new genius that reinvents everything we do. It does happen. But if your business success is predicated on finding these guys or these girls that have this kind of mindset, you're probably better off relying on things that are more, I guess, more likely to happen, like finding someone that actually has a specific need for a specific thing like that upgrade or that sale is going to be faster based on what we're discussing. But it's also going to be more predictable, which is good for you. I would also say that the number of self-declared visionaries that are new arrivals that succeed <laughs> is low. Now, if you talk to somebody that's been at the company a while and seems like they're respected and they say, we realize we've reached the end of the road with how we're doing this, we need to change. Okay, I think that person, you can say, okay, they're probably willing to make bigger changes. But even there... They're going to want some kind of translation, transition strategy. They're not going to say, okay, all that, all those customers are serving with our things that are working. We're just going to fire up and restart and bet all of our future on a tiny startup that no one's heard yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I think that's definitely a bigger topic that we should definitely cover in a future episode. But yeah. for now, if we were to sum it up, like, how would you 
How would you frame it as the most actionable ideas that people should be focusing on? I think I would pick two. I would try and narrow my focus as much as possible to what is the incremental output, the incremental result that people are willing to pay for and figure out how to deliver that. And secondly, when you're looking at what constitutes your product, the more that you can incorporate things that are already available to your customer in their environment or already available off the shelf as proven solutions, you're reducing your risk of failure. So you're kind of shrinking in two dimensions. You're trying to focus on just the exact thing they want and making as little disruption as possible to existing workflows, practices, infrastructure. Okay, that's great. That's great. So, so where can people go to to find out more about our, our stuff? Give us feedback for the, the podcast and everything. Well, there's Lean B2B and SK Murphy. <laughs> yes, otherwise on Twitter. And we're actually going to be continuing this discussion in the next episode where we talk about the flip side of the coin. So what happens when your time is running ads and what's the impact on startups? Thanks for listening to the Time to Market podcast. You can subscribe on your favorite app, leave a review, share, and we'll see you next week for more actionable advice.